Good evening. I'd like to resume the study session. And the next item up is Development Impact Fee Study. Yes, thank you, Mayor Barrett. And uh, this is uh, back to Katie Gregory. Thank you. Tonight um, is just really a, a quick update for Council and an opportunity for Council to provide some um, early, very early um, input on the impact fee study update that we will be undertaking over the next 15 to 18 months. Just real briefly, um, in, impact fees are fees that are used to offset the cost um, related to new growth. They are related to the one-time cost of new growth and they are, as you're very aware and as I've talked with you before, subject to statutory and legal requirements. Um, in, Jan in December I came to you with some changes to our impact fees based upon the new Senate Bill 1525 that went through and we had to make some adjustments to fees. Um, as we go forward, we have a number of fee categories. Our current fee categories include streets, community park and facilities, neighborhood parks, libraries, police, fire, water expansion, wastewater expansion, and water resources. Um, in January, we did uh, take out, uh, or we did elect not to continue assessing fees for trails and open space due to the restrictions on the new um, statute. However, I would just like to put forward that that is still an area where the statute isn't specific, in or out, and um, we'd like to engage with our consultants on some discussion about that as to whether or not they would recommend including um, the trail and open space fee in a future um, fee update. So that's just generally where we're going with that. Um, we do have, um, as you're aware, impact fees are a significant source of um, funding for a number of our important capital projects currently. Um, our 10-year capital improvement plan includes about $80 million worth of projects across all categories funded with impact fees. That's about 17% of our total capital program. They are used for a cross-section of projects in all the categories I mentioned earlier. So they're very significant in the reach that impact fees have. And in the case of utilities, they do help us uh, keep our rates low because the portion that is attributable to new growth is a portion that's covered by impact fees and that, therefore ratepayers don't have to um, pay for that portion. Tonight I wanted to bring forward just um, some items uh, that council may want to discuss or, um, or not and um, wanted to provide an opportunity for council to weigh in um, if there's any um, pressing policy items that you would like staff to consider as we start moving forward. We are currently in the process of um, finalizing the um, selection of a consultant and we will be bringing that forward uh, to council in the near future, probably after your summer break, we'll be bring for it, for bringing forward a contract for a consultant or consultants uh, for the impact fees. But um, as has been in the case of the past, as been the case in the past, there are a number of policy options um, to be discussed with you at various points during the update. This will not be the last chance. Um, this is the first and very early chance for council to just sort of weigh in. We will have numerous updates to Council as we go along and certainly not only from the consultants but I myself will be providing you some additional updates. Um, one of the areas we talked about um, as a potential policy discussion is some of the eligible facilities. As you know, Senate Bill 1525 made some significant changes to what can be included and what cannot. Ultimately, we will have to make some decisions about which projects we include and the timing of those projects and whether we believe those projects will be able to be completed within the time frame required. Um, we also clearly have um, some pretty well-stated economic development priorities and how impact fees play into some of those economic development priorities are um, definitely some items that I'd like to bring back to this council for discussion. In, in addition, we have existing and future development agreements um, that impact fees are woven in many of those and would be woven in many of those in the future assuming um, you know, a similar pattern with, the, with impact fees going forward. So there may be some policy items we'd want to discuss associated with that. Service areas are going to be a big um, issue going forward. When I say it's an issue or a consideration, um, currently, as many of you are probably aware, we have a number of um, zones in the city for transportation. We also have zones in the city for parks. Um, the new statute may even restrict us further to having to create many more multiple zones within those zones. Um, or um, you know, we may have some other options, and so we'll be exploring those as we go forward with the study. And lastly, um, just as another um, item that may, may, we will need to make some decisions upon going forward is, is an advisory committee versus doing biennial audits. 
This new statute requires that. Cities will have the opportunity to choose which way they want to go, um, and um, that would be a policy decision that we'd want to bring, bring back. Um, Just a question. Katie, can you expound upon that advisory committee versus audits? What do you mean by that? Sure. The statute, as it's written, um, gives an option for, as you go through the study, for you to form an advisory committee um, that I believe uh, at this point is 50% of that committee is made up of the development community, 50% is made up of maybe non-development community um, folks, but doesn't include city staff to be an advisory committee in the development of your land use assumptions, your IIP, they basically um, approve your IIP, and they also would ob obviously approve at various steps through the process some of the um, analysis that comes out as part of the um, impact fee study. The alternative, alternative to that is to do biennial audits. Have an outside consultant come in and do a biennial audit of all of your transactions associated with impact fees um, and review all of your, your study information, your data, um, your land use assumptions, all of those. So this is after we bring the consultant in to help us formulate our policy. Mm -hmm. Then this is this is an after the fact kind of thing, like maybe a year down the road. Is that what you're talking about? No, not necessarily. If we're going to, if 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 an advisory committee ultimately is the direction we would want to go, then we would want to do that early because one of the first steps in the impact fee is to go through the land use assumptions and develop kind of the time frame that we're talking about, the, the growth that we expect within that time frame, the land use assumptions associated with that time frame, and develop what we have called or what we were, requir we're required to have, which is an infrastructure improvement plan, which is a listing of all the projects that are impact fee eligible projects um, and costs and all of that. So, so the advisory committee would be required to basically do the review and assessment of that and, and, and approve it to go forward to the next step. The alternative to that is that we don't have to have an advisory committee. We can continue to do as we've done in the past, have our stakeholder outreach, do all of our discussions with our development community in a more, in, in less of an advisory committee um, standpoint and instead do a um, biennial audit. And that would just mean that we'd continue to engage with our stakeholders, but ultimately we'd be required rather than just doing an annual report each year that gets filed with our city clerk, we would be required to hire an outside company to come in and audit our, our transactions. Well, I know in the past we have done an exceptional job of, of stakeholder involvement, and it sounds like the advisory committee just might be a way to formalize that. Uh, but we've, you know, I mean, that's just right up our alley. That's something that we've always done. We've always incorporated all of the um, opinions and comments from all those people, and um, they've been extremely beneficial. Right. And I certainly would expect that were we to go that route, then that would be the group that we draw from for many of our members of that committee. Okay, thanks. Ultimately, what we're looking to get out of the development fee study is a development fees that um, reflect um, the cost of growth to Peoria and provide adequate revenue to support that future, those future development needs associated with growth. We also want to make sure that this, through the study that we are 100% aligned with new statutory requirements. There's numerous reasons for us wanting to do that, but primarily because, quite honestly, it's time for us to just rest, <laughs> in my opinion, on, on bringing these things back because we need, some, we need a chance to, 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 make, to get it done, to get it done right and not have too many changes. There are some significant administrative changes that have come as part of S Senate Bill 1525 that we're going to have to work on more from an administrative standpoint. Um, but they are significant, and when things like that change, it does pose, you know, a greater impact on um, staff to try to adjust our systems and adjust all of our um, processes in order to comply. Um, and, and finally, obviously, we want um, our impact fees to support the city's growth and economic development goals as well. So um, those are really the project outcomes. And with that, if there are specific items, and I know, Councilmember Rivera, you had an item you were interested in, in bringing forward. Um, I'd love to hear about that now, particularly as we just are just getting started on this. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Mayor. Thank you, Katie. Uh, yes, I've been talking to our, our city manager and to you, Katie, about uh, considering, um, you know, maybe some of the areas in, in the Barney Track area where um, there hasn't been any construction, if there's a possibility of um, reducing the permit fees so that we can encourage some development. I'm talking about homes. 
Right, and I think you're referring to maybe some infill developments yes. that would be reoccurring. And, and just as a reminder, any, any development that's in areas of the city where there's existing development and then redevelopment is occurring in that area, whether it's a, you know, um, in our downtown area or, or, or whatnot, impact fees are not generally, you would not pay additional impact fees assuming you haven't made a significant increase to the use associated with that. Um, but if it's a teardown house, you wouldn't pay impact fees again. But if it's a brand new house, they would be, that would be part of it. We certainly can look at different types of programs that are out there and I can ask the consultant to give us some recommendations as to how we might be able to go about that so that we're not outside of the statutory requirement. Uh, would it be outside of the statutory um, if uh, there's an empty property in one of these old neighborhoods and the owner wanted to build a brand new home? Would that be possible? Yeah, I think as we've talked about this, that that's that's the question. If, if I recall the conversation, mm -hmm. Councilman Rivera was where we may have a vacant lot that's perhaps always been vacant. Yes. Um, and uh, really, in the in the true sense, infill residential development, where um, we'd be looking at a at a new single-family home being built on one of these uh, parcels. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that is in keeping with, with what we could do. Did you? Uh, yes, I think that would be something we'll have to look at in two ways. One, we do have some infill incentive provisions within the zoning code, which we can look at. The other side of this is going to be the changes in the statute are going to significantly alter where in the past we would simply say that home has an incremental additional cost of development, and that's what you pay the fee for. The new statutory framework isn't based on that incremental cost approach. It's based on essentially, we have this category of things that are necessary public services. That's all you pay for. Even if there's incremental costs to the city and other things, you don't pay for that. So I think you're gonna find first in those infill areas, there's gonna be some downward adjustment in those costs because of the statutory framework. Mm -hmm. And then the question is, is how do we address some of the other concerns beyond that? And I think as we go through this, we can take a certain look at some ways to do that. So either way, I think we can get to the to the place that you're suggesting, Councilor. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. thank you. Thank you, Mayor. Katie, could you go back one slide? Sure. Now I know in your discussion you mentioned that uh, you know uh, SB fifteen twenty five. I think that was the number. Uh, uh, will have an effect on current projects and the timing of those projects and the funding. And, and, and I realize many people have different views on, on, on that particular piece of legislation and good, bad, whatever, but it, it's a fact and, it, and we have to deal with it. And I see your study outcomes and I have one I'd like you to consider that's um, not directly fee related, but it affects fees, and it's called essentially thinking outside the box. I think we need to add a new level of strategic discussions about libraries and parks and, um, and community centers and how this new law affects our grand strategy, our, 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 our philosophy, if you will, of providing those services. For instance, uh, the, the new law says that, uh, you know, libraries basically, we, we can't use that money, development fees for libraries over 10,000 square feet. Does that mean we're only gonna have 10,000 square foot libraries? Uh, we, can't, we can't spend money on, on parks bigger than 30 acres. Does that mean we have to rethink our whole concept of neighborhood parks and community parks and, and come up with a new category? Um, uh, community centers, I mean, 3,000 square feet. Does that mean we're gonna be using, uh, looking at uh, vacant uh, strip malls and, and maybe turning some of those into community centers? I, I don't know. The, the point is we have to have some strategic thinking about how we accomplish our overall goals and it may require us, it will require us to think literally outside the box and how we provide those services. So I would appreciate if you add at least one more bullet to this that staff participate in a strategic discussion about the impact of this law and how it may affect our providing services. Thank you. Other questions or comments? 
you have everything you need? I do. Thank you. And I'll be back in front of you again in the near future on this item. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Next is field allocation policy. And uh, interim community services director Jeff Tyne. Thank friends. Uh, <laughs> friends. Thank you, Mayor and Council. Uh, as our new community services director had alluded, we are very fortunate to have uh, what we all consider is a first-rate parks and recreation system here in the, in the city of Peoria. Um, but with that comes, uh, unfortunately, that it can at times become a victim of its own success. There is significant demand uh, for the field usage in our various parks and facilities, and it continues to increase. We're going to be very fortunate that in a year or so we'll be able to accommodate some of that with the um, construction, development, and programming of the new Pioneer Community Park. But even with that in mind, and in doing so, we want to make sure that we have good guidelines for how we should be allocating uh, the uses of those fields. Uh, so uh, it's important for us, as, as you're all aware in the past, and you've seen how we've gone about programming, uh, to strike a balance. Uh, we want to be able to forward the use of these facilities to our, our general public, to the residents, also, it's important for us to also have the opportunity for our recreation programs, for special events, and also arrangements for the various stakeholders. We have a very good relationship, for example, with the school district and our use for that with the Little Leagues. Uh, so uh, earlier this year, we had discussed this concept of uh, creating a draft field allocation policy. This was discussed with the Council Subcommittee on, uh, communi uh, on Community Culture. Uh, that subcommittee was in support of the recommendation that you'll be hearing here tonight uh, by staff. Uh, with us today is Brenda Ranke, our recreation manager, also Mark Rust, our sports programs coordinator, and Chris Eason, the sports complex uh, manager, to really talk about different aspects of this. And uh, if I may, I'll pass it over to Ms. Ranke. Thanks, Jeff. Um, tonight we're going to go through, get on to the next slide here, um, what our demands are for our, our field rentals right now and the lights. Um, from our own city leagues and programs, uh, multiple nonprofit groups like Little Leagues and our tournament promoters, and who gets priority on our fields and mainly our lighted fields that are out there. We've always had informal practices and guidelines throughout the years, but now it's really time that we sit down and, and make a formalized process and a policy out there so that everyone can understand how we allocate our fields and our lights. I'm going to turn over to Mark Brust, and he's going to go through um, what he does in our neighborhood and our community parks and how we allocate through that. Thanks, Brenda. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Currently, we employ a system of allocation that is separated into two distinct processes, the first being tournament use, which mainly happens at Rio Vista Community Park and ultimately will happen at Pioneer Community Park. Uh, this long-range planning in involves us allocating fields in September for the following calendar year. Uh, the reason we commit there is because we're able to attract national, state, and local tournaments that will bring business to Peoria and have a strong economic impact by occupying our hotels, uh, using our restaurants, and, and going to our retail centers. These uh, tournaments take a lot of logistics, a lot of staff time, but they're worth it in the long run. The second way that we allocate fields is through non-tournament use, and this is mainly through use of our community parks and neighborhood parks. They're much easier to manage, but they tend to be circumstances where we'll allocate fields in two or three month increments, mainly to things like little leagues and other user groups that are looking for long, uh, long, excuse me, long sustained use. Uh, practice spaces uh, in the neighborhood parks are allocated very carefully. We really care for the, the parks and, and want to make sure that they're used in an appropriate way. We look, look at the amenities in the park, for example, things like parking, and appropriate restrooms would make us not give a facility to a group like this uh, in order to preserve the park for the neighborhoods and have passive play there. Uh, we have many uh, current challenges, uh, particularly with, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, with uh, our nonprofit groups. Uh, these are groups like Little League, uh, Pop Warner Football that you're all very familiar with. Uh, they're also historical users of our facility, and in the past we've tended to honor that historical use. The evolution of these programs, though, is that we, we found that they've become regionalized, and they're no longer 90% Peoria residents as we've honored in the past. So it's changed the dynamic by which we've looked to allocate fields to them and made it harder for us to do that. Uh, we have also resisted long-term reservations in the parks. Uh, for example, if a club baseball team came up to us and said, we'd like to have uh, Varney Park, Sean, Sean Green Field, 
uh, essentially for perpetuity, we don't really see how that's fair to the rest of the community and we restrict their use to just four uses so that we can be fair and diligent in our allocation of the fields. Uh, these groups uh, really are after our lighted spaces and in the city of Peoria, including Rio Vista, we only have eight of those fields. So there's really a premium on this kind of space. Uh, obviously there's a need for more, but that still means that we have to deal with the, the inventory that we have and try and accommodate everyone as best we can. Uh, we're really just trying to be fair and have good practices in this case, and as Brenda mentioned, looking to adopt the, a policy that will allow us to do that in a very transparent sort of way. The way we actually do allocations is actually in four distinct categories, but what I wanted to mention first is that we always honor uh, the opportunity for a dad and his son to go to a park and, and take advantage of the spaces that we do have. With all that being said, we do have four priority groups, and this is the, the allocation process in, in action. Uh, when we write our calendar, the first thing that we accommodate is our city programs and events. We put those on the calendar first. Those dates essentially become sacred to us. Uh, next is our school district agreement. Through our IGA, we'll put their events on the calendar, make sure that those uses are accommodated uh, and, and taken care of in the appropriate way. After that, we really get into our big user group, which is the nonprofits and our, and our residents. Again, that's things like Little League, uh, Pop Warner football and such. Uh, once these groups are, are enacted, and put on the fields between their use and then our city program's use, we've really taken up every lighted space that we have, and we're really at a point where we can't really accommodate group number four, which is commercial and non-resident groups. So you can see that this is really a complicated process. We're essentially landlocked here and really looking for a way to be fair and equitable in the way we dole out these fields, and, and this is the process that we've used. Uh, our process is, is very unique. Uh, the sports complex has its own way of doing things, and I'll hand it over to Chris to let him go ahead and do that. Thanks, Mark. We have a question first. Oh, sure, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Ms. Carla. Before we move into the sports complex, um, I would like to talk about the nonprofit and the residents, you know, and, I, and I'm talking about Sidewinder Little League mm -hmm. because they're a very large little league. Right. They are primarily residents in the northern part of the city. We have one lighted field north of Bell Road. And, and it's, you know, absolutely not fair, and it's, um, very, very difficult for them to play. And these, these are residents in our city. So if, if we can't come up with another way of allocating fields, the only other alternative that I can understand is that we come up with another way of allocating money so that we can afford to buy more lights for fields. So can we talk about that for a moment? Sure, we can talk about that, <laughs> absolutely. Um, with Pioneer Community Park coming on board, we do gain six more fields. Obviously, though, it is in the southern part of, of Peoria, which means that we'll allocate, reallocate the user groups out of Rio Vista, probably coming down to Pioneer Community Park, and Sidewinders will come down into Rio Vista like they used to be all the time before, and they still continue to use it. They'll just have more fields there. So with Pioneer Community Park, we do have some wonderful opportunities available to us, um, but you are correct. The northern part of, of Peoria is definitely lacking in that, and during our CIP process, that is something that we definitely re review um, in the allocation of, of budget for you know, land use, um, purchasing for parks, and mainly for lighted facilities up there. And then, of course, we'll always have to look at the operational needs for that. Um, it was definitely in the plans um, to do that. Um, but things have slowed down a little bit, um, but it's never off the table with us ever. I, I would, I just need to stress this. It's, it's really, I mean, we're, we're so, so amazingly far behind in getting up to speed with, with the needs of the northern part of the city. I really want to stress that this become a budget item for lights in existing fields. We've got some existing parks that don't have lights and they really need to have them. So we've got to find a way to serve these citizens. I mean, we're talking, what, 50, 55,000 people who live in our city who have one lighted field. It's yep. unacceptable. If I may, you're right. The, 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 there's no question that the, um, everything you're saying about the allocation of lighted fields is true. Um, and as Brenda points out, there's more fields coming online, but it's in the southern part of the city. Um, and so I think it should be a priority for us uh, going forward as we look at strategic investments in the northern part of the city is to, is to allocate resources for 
increasing lighted ball fields uh, up north. And perhaps there's a way um, in partnership with PUSD, of course, who we have a great partnership with to see if there's uh, opportunities in some of the fields that they have to um, expand that partnership and to create lighted fields. And, um, and Deer Valley School District. Uh, indeed, indeed, right, absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, Brenda, how many parks do we have that has lights? Um, we have um, Real Vista Park, obviously, yeah. everybody knows yeah. that. We have Varney Park, uh, Murphy Park, and then we have lighted fields on school property, Cheyenne, Coyote Hills, and Sunrise Mountain has lights on it. How about Country Meadows? Country Meadows does does not have lights. So I had to need, think there for a second. So we'll, we'll just, just like up north, we need lights over there. Yeah. And, and, and how about Monroe Park? Which park? Monroe. Monroe Park does not have lights. So we need lights over there. But there's no too. fields there either, though. So we can have lights at Peoria Park? We do not have lights at, no, we do not. Thank you. Ms. Evans? Okay, I, I know that Chris hasn't shared his uh, part, but I would just like to remind you all that um, Willow District covers a lot of the northern section and it does have the sports complex, so perhaps some priority should be given to Willow District uh, teams from the north to have that as theirs also. Thank you. One, one more question. I know. <laughs> you guys opened up a can of worms here. Uh, okay, hold it, hold it. Let, let's, uh, let's pull it back together, people. Go ahead, Carl. How about Scotland Yard? Are they going to have a lights? No, it's not. Another one. Yeah. Okay, are we done with the roll call? Can we move on? Chris, did you want to give uh, speak to the sports complex? Yes. Thanks, Carl. At the sports complex, we, where we also see ourselves as a community asset, we operate under a different model, serving as an enterprise operation and thus aspire to be self-sustaining. When allocating fields, we first take into account the dedicated use for our MLB teams per their facility use agreements, which includes exclusive use periods and areas. After that, we focus on our ability to recover revenues. Thus, we allocate fields and other usage areas on a first-come, first-served basis by way of reservations taken throughout the year. Like Mark mentioned, we also see the benefit of having long-standing relationships, which enables us to allocate fields based on historical use, such as city baseball leagues, little league, and annual baseball tournaments. An important piece when allocating use of the sports complex also includes contractual obligations such as the agreement we hold with our important nonprofit partners, the Peoria Diamond Club, who are an integral part of our yearly operation there at the sports complex. Per contract, they're able to use the facility for up to five events, thus enabling them to raise additional funds that are in turn distributed to local West Valley youth charities. Because we also regularly contract with traditional partners, such as tournament promoters, and local businesses and organizations. Our business model furthermore encourages us to enter into multi-year deals with known commodities in turn creating long-term successful relationships. Along with these valuable relationships comes a very important area of economic development, bringing people from all around the nation for large-scale tournaments. The tournament promoters strive to capture teams and players from outside the state and city which creates a huge economic driver for the area, including its hotels, restaurants, and entertainment. As we all know, the financial benefit to the city outside of the rental of the facility itself is one of the primary goals when booking events such as these. Because of that, field allocations are sometimes decided based on the discretion for economic development. We continually work with local hotels and booking agents to keep these teams in Peoria when here for tournaments. Additionally, it is also common for special promotional packets to be developed to help keep these participants in Peoria during their stay. Thank you. 
Chris, maybe you would be able to just real quickly answer uh, the one question regarding the use of the fields by uh, smaller group, smaller age or younger age uh, little league groups. Yeah, that would that would be the main issue. In you asked about the allocation of to different teams. Um, the, what we run into is the age groups. We we do host little league there currently, but it's the junior and senior divisions, and those I believe are 14 to 16 year old uh, youngsters. Yeah, the thing that I've heard is uh, lights at parks. Uh, I think in the Palo Verde district, are, are there any at any of the parks there? I, th I don't think it's just a northern. I think it's an overall problem we have. I know the Church of Latter-day Saints, cross from Winrose, has a lighted uh, park, but that's theirs, right, as a, as a church there. And, uh, Little League does use that park, or that church with the lights on it. Yeah. They have for historically used it for as long as I can remember, 25 years. And that's gratis of the church to do that? I think they've worked together in the past to create those lights, yeah. put those lights up, and then they get to use it. But generally, lighted fields are very rare, really anywhere in the yeah. city. So I think we need to address overall, including the north, and uh, maybe, we need to, maybe we need to do some investment in that area. I know it's, it's a cost to do the lights, and it's a cost to operate the lights, right? So it's not, li not like daylight. <laughs> okay, thank you. Uh, with that, staff recommends um, City Council adopting the field reservation policy um, where we prioritize our user groups and how we allocate our fields out. Um, and we make a distinction between tournaments and non-tournament use. And it is a different business model at the sports complex than what the community and neighborhood parks are like. Uh, with that, we also would assess fees to everyone that's out there as is specified in our recreation fee policy that was adopted by City Council in April. Um, but it still allows the department a little bit of discretion that if a long-term historical user group like a nonprofit is having some issues and cannot meet uh, those fees, we would help them with that, wave them if that's necessary. It also gives us an opportunity that we have something coming in the future uh, that wants to come into our, some of our lighted fields. We have that ability to do that also. Whatever we do, though, we will always be looking at this policy um, periodically through the years to make sure that it's still viable with all of our uses that we have in our park systems and at the sports complex. And with that, we can answer any more questions that you may have. Questions? Yes, Mayor, I, I, I'm just outraged. I have to point out that Ironwood District doesn't have a hockey arena or doesn't have a bowling alley. <laughs> We're, we've been shorted. I'm joking. I, I can get you a hockey arena. <laughs> <laughs> just just jack it up and bring it to us. <laughs> I wanted, seriously, I did have a question, Mayor. Um, as I read the, the, the packet, and I, I look at our existing uh, priority rules or practices, they seem pretty logical. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm, I'm, I guess what I'm going to ask is, is the process that you're proposing going to take the existing rules and not just, and, and memorialize them, but also to refine them, not necessarily, necessarily radically change them, but to refine them. Is that what we're looking at? We've had these policies, in, or policy, we have these guidelines in place ever since we put them together when Real Vista came online with us in 2004. And through the years, we have refined them over and over, and we feel very comfortable what we're presenting tonight is the formalized process that we want to put out there and for everyone to look at. Mark and Chris have always done this over the years, um, but our user groups have changed. So, with so us. You, you feel comfortable, I'm with, very comfortable. With, with the way we're running things now. Yes. You just need to put it into a formal policy. Exactly. Gotcha. Thank you. Okay. Questions or comments? Is we running? May I? Can I talk about lights? No. Okay. <laughs> so what are you looking for from us tonight? You're looking uh, for a consensus to formalize this and then bring it back? Uh, if I may, Mayor, uh, within your packet, you will see a draft field allocation policy. Mm -hmm. uh, should you feel comfortable with the policy as it stands, which again is, is consistent with the practices that we've uh, consistently done and historically done, uh, we would bring this forward as a formal action for the City Council for adoption. Okay. Mayor? Yes. Mr. Ames. Uh, yes, I think while you do that, and we've seen some weaknesses 
in our system. We just don't have the capacity or the right kind of facilities. I'd like you to identify those two so that we can look at those in terms of the long run to resolve some of the problems that we have here, such as lighting. We will be going through the Parks, Recreation, Open Space Master Plan process this coming year, which will give us the opportunity to look at our whole system at that point in time and give input into that and what we need as a city uh, to go forward in the future. This is just the policy to allocate the existing fields that we have out there currently. You will have a chance during the post to do all that. Yeah, I'd like you to tie them together a little bit because how you, you know, where you have problems allocating might get back to the general plan. Correct. We will look at that during the post as, as the issues that we have currently and some of the lacking of lighted fields and where they're currently located in the city and the demands and the needs that are out there. And there may be a few others that would really open up usage if, if we had the the facilities. And at, the right you know, kind. during the pros, we'd also go to our user groups and ask them what they would like to see too. Okay. So, is the consensus to bring this forward as a policy? Yes. 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 Mm -hmm. yes. Yes. You got it. Next is trail lighting. <laughs> yes. Um, speaking of lighting, uh, the last item uh, this evening is um, trail lighting. Uh, thank you again, Mayor and Council. We're, we're excited to see a growing interest in the city's regionally integrated trail system. As our citizens have become familiar with this asset, a number of considerations, though, do surface regarding the use and amenities uh, on the trail. Included in that conversation is the possibility of lighting systems along the trail. And as we'll discuss here shortly, and with us we have our parks manager, Kirk Haynes, as we'll discuss Trail lighting can be a complex and financially significant effort. It also can affect uh, neighbors that are especially adjacent to that area. So uh, what we wanted to do today, just to be clear, this is more just to begin the conversation. We are not recommending a lighting policy today. Instead, we wanted to familiarize you with some of the issues, discuss the staff's approach uh, on how we would strategically address trail lighting and then obtain your feedback uh, this was something, again, that back in January was discussed with the subcommittee. This is just consistent with uh, the direction from that. And with that, if I may, I'll pass it over to Mr. Haynes to, to go through this. Mayor and Council, I feel a little bit behind the eight ball talking about lighting after the previous discussion, so we'll do our best. I think Jeff really hit the nail on the head. Tonight's discussion is maybe to talk about whether we should or shouldn't be lighting and uh, looking for our trail system and looking at the implementation of a policy and how do we go about developing that policy in and of itself. Here's a couple of images of our trail system. Uh, it's become widely popular amongst a lot of people within our community. Uh, some images that demonstrate the trail in and of itself. This is our trail system. The New River Trail is about 30, 40% completed. The Skunk Creek Trail system is complete, but as you see, there are a lot of lengthy trail systems that have not started yet and are, have the potential of creating one of those quality of life issues to many citizens as we move forward and grow in the future within our community. The city has received numerous comments and calls from our trail users that fully support the work and the connectivity the city has accomplished over the past year, especially the nice underpasses that have been completed recently, as well as filling in some of the missing gaps between Grand Avenue and between Bell Road and Union Hills. We've also received questions when we'll be extending the trail to the north and to the south, as well as filling in some of the soft surface trail that exists adjacent to the Fletcher Heights residential area. We also received some other type of comments and feedback about motorized vehicles that are on the trails, litters, trash, animal droppings, and other different things like graffiti that will occasionally pop up along the way. The idea of the lighting of the trail can be a very appealing uh, at, as many uses uh, and positive activities can occur, especially in the winter months when it gets dark early, as, as well as in the summer months when it gets really warm outside in the afternoon and people are coming home from work. Furthermore, lighting can provide an added sense of safety so you can see what's in front of you as well as 
other, other people using the trail. It can also provide opportunities to connect to amenities like Rio Vista Community Park, some of our businesses and commercial areas that are near the trail without having to always drive a motorized vehicle. We talked a little bit about sustainability tonight in, in this area as well. And some examples of the lighting systems on this particular image demonstrate safety at some of our underpasses, which we currently have within our system, as well as connections within the community and tying uh, neighborhoods together. The idea of the lighting, lighting the trail can also cause concerns for some, especially in the areas of privacy, noise, light pollution, and sense of security for those that live closest to the trail. Some of the examples I'd like to share with you in this particular area is located near the Desert Harbor area north of uh, Rio Vista Community Park. In this particular area of the path, you can identify the cl closeness of the proximity of the trail to some of the residential properties that exist adjacent to the trail system. Similarly, north, uh, just south of Deer Valley Road, there, here we have about a three-foot separation between a property wall and someone working on the roof. It, it shows, at least on this image, at that point in time, um, but it, it does have an effect with noise and privacy to the adjacent landowner. This is the Greenway Channel, which connects all of our Sun City residents into the New River Trail system. We'll often see them coming across 91st Avenue at Greenway and connecting into the trail. This particular area is extremely dark and can be unsafe at nighttime along this particular area as there is no uh, adjacent lighting that would connect or even have access uh, so people could see. And finally, we recently completed about a three-quarter mile stretch between Bell Road and Union Hills. And again, we went out and talked with the residents at that time. And we had some dialogue or conversation that said we weren't looking at lighting at this point in time, but uh, we were going to make the connections happen. And at that point, the community was very supportive of the trail system, but we'd have to ask questions to see whether they have additional concerns if we wanted to move forward with lighting during the evening hours. Another concern is in the relationship to our capital and ongoing costs. As you can see, the cost to light the trail system can be very expensive. Uh, our recent engineering estimates project the cost range between $250,000 and $300,000, $350,000 per mile, depending on the type of lights that would be installed, such as baller lighting to reduce the light pollution, but there would be more fixtures that would add up additional cost. However, those fixtures uh, are more accessible to vandalism, which can create more ongoing costs as well. Currently, trail lighting is not recognized in the 10-year capital improvement plan, and the impact fees are no longer of an available source for this particular program. Mr. Ames, question? Yes. Uh, that 250 to 350, is that to install? That is an installed price, that's correct. Okay, and then, then you'd have the uh, lighting costs uh, Ongoing for the electrical and any repairs that would be needed along the way in your operating budget. The capital cost would be the 250 to 350. Right. Do you have a cost for what the lighting would be? Uh, it really, it really depends on the type of light fixtures that we have. LEDs are going to use less electricity, and probably the electrical, actual electrical cost would be minor by comparison of the repair costs and some of the potential access to vandalism. Because there, there is lighting these days that doesn't take the voltage That's correct. of the past. Okay, thank That's you. That's correct. Last year, through the Community Works Program, we looked at the possibility of doing a pilot project to light a short segment of the trail with solar power lighting between Rio Vista Community Park and 83rd Avenue through the lower portion of the Skunk Creek Channel, including the underpasses at Loop 101 and 83rd Avenue. The intent of the pilot project would be to connect trail users safely during the evening hours to the Arrowhead Fountains commercial area along 83rd Avenue. As we began to look greater into the detail of the project, it became evident that the solar technology was not far enough advanced at this time to meet the objective and the complications of installing an electrical system in or near the bottom of the channel would be extremely difficult and potentially expensive. We shared this information with the Council Subcommittee earlier this year and informed them that we would not be pursuing that particular lighting connection at this time. However, we also stated that lighting the underpasses at 83rd and Loop 101 were moving forward as part of the 
uh, of, the, of the trailhead project that will be uh, underway later this year. This leads us to what Mr. Tyne stated in his introductory remarks about moving forward into our next steps. We would believe it would be advantageous to get public input and feedback about the trail lighting topic. This can be accomplished through a survey instrument through our parks, recreation, open space, and trails master plan. Brenda made mention of that earlier. We are moving that into, that is in the capital improvement program and would be funded in the upcoming year to talk to the citizens and get input uh, to see whether they would be willing to utilize the trail and feel safe or comfortable or in what areas of the city would it be appropriate to light the trails based on usage patterns potentially. So the survey in instrument would sincerely help us uh, determine what the user interest and needs might be as we move forward. Once we have that information, we'd share those results with City Council. Uh, and then we would look to develop a strategy that would be based on the citizens' input and comments. Then, if we decide to move forward at that point, then we can bring, develop the trail policy, put it in draft form, and look forward to the future whether or not that the city uh, it wants to make the investment to move forward with lighting. And with that, I'd be happy to answer any questions. Thank you, Mr. Ames. Yeah, maybe you were thinking about it in conducting the survey. I would like to see uh, some numbers of some usage numbers at, at nighttime, and it might vary by area, right, somewhat. But uh, it, how much demand is there really to use the trails at night? That's, that's I think the weekends are the big usage times, aren't they? During the weekdays, during the daytime hours, we can definitely look at that as an opportunity to see what our usage patterns are and what type of activity is going on out there. There shouldn't be any nighttime activity right now because the trails are officially closed from dusk. Well, if going. you're doing a survey, you might be able to extrapolate and get That's an correct. estimate of who might use it at night. That, that is correct. Yeah. Mr. Leone. <clears throat> yeah, Kurt, uh, I have a lot of my constituents that use that trail, and they like to use them at night, especially in the wintertime. But it's, it's, it's dark for them to, to use it. And they were asking me about lights, and I said that, we will be looking into and talking about it, but I didn't give them any uh, information that we would get them. I just said we would talk about them. But my question is that <clears throat> if they go behind these homes, like those mobile homes that we have over there, the people don't want them shining into the house or the backyard. Are we going to have to go over there and take a ask the, ask the residents how they feel about it? That's The lights are going to be right in their backyard. Or how will we work that? That's, that's a wonderful question, and I, I believe how we would address that is if, if we believe that we have an interest in moving forward with lighting our trail, our trail system in some way or another, we would definitely want to have some dialogue with the residents that live right next to the trail system either through public meetings or through focus groups, depending on the area that we're looking at, and trying to get some input as to mitigating factors that the city might be able to adjust or adapt in order to move forward with that particular plan. And if it is the lighting levels or some safety concerns or issues, it could be enforcement or other things. So we definitely would want to get their specific feedback so we can make accommodations or adjustments as we move forward. Now that trail go behind Sun Air, am I correct? Um, yeah, 95th Avenue, that would yeah. be Sun Area, would be just to the uh, east of that location where the New River Channel is at. That's correct. Would the lights be shining oh. in there? They're on could the east side. I'm sorry, they're on the east side of the river. Right now the trail is on the west side of the river, mm -hmm. so it wouldn't be directly affecting that particular neighborhood at this time. Okay, thank you. Uh, Mr. Pearson. Vice Mayor, regarding your... Uh, your suggestion that we survey just to find out what the, the needs are and what the wants are of people, I, I assure you, if we build it, they will come. Uh, this is the time of night that I'd love to be out hike, uh, walking on the, on the trail, but it's not safe. Um, <laughs> so so it, indeed, indeed, I, I, th I think there is a need. I, I, philosophically, I, I think 
we've got to, to uh, light this trail. How we do it is, is another question, and when we do it and where we get the money is all, all great questions, but I, I certainly want to go on record as saying I, I think if we want to be a, a, a walkable city, if we want to be that sustainable city we were talking about, we've got to encourage people, especially uh, in the summers, to get out uh, in, in where it's dark right now, and, and that means lighting. Uh, I would say, to build on what Mr. Uh, Leone said, I don't think one there's a one-size solution to all of this. When you take your surveys, you may find that there are some areas that two feet from the trail, they don't want lights, but we may be able to accommodate a different kind of light that will provide safe access but not impact their privacy. And yet, I know for certain that there are some areas of the trail south of Rio Vista on either side of the river that in 2006, uh, Mr. Uh, Bill Mattingly and, and uh, J.P. Montaigne at the time found out there was a very cheap, far less than $250,000, uh, uh, a very cheap way to light those both sides of those trails because there are existing streetlights and all we had to do was put another arm on on the existing streetlights, very inexpensive. So there are some areas that we could right now light very inexpensively, whether we want to do it and encourage the, you know, that attractive nuisance of people coming through that dark greenway <laughs> to get to the lighted area. I don't know. I think that's a good question. But I, I encourage you to, when you look at it, when you do your surveys, there are some areas that we can do this very cheaply. And there are some areas that are going to be more expensive and, and perhaps what we do is we start where our centers of activity are, which would be Rio Vista, and work out. I don't know, but we need to need to have a working philosophy as well. So uh, good luck to you. I think I think uh, this is where we have to go. We have to go that direction. Thank you. Mr. Ames. Yeah, I, I disagree with uh, Mr. Pearson. I, I think you can get a sense of usage. You can look at other cities that do maybe have night lighting at trails. They may have some figures about the ratio of daytime versus nighttime. So I think there are ways to get some estimate. And a lot of people live a long ways from the trails and they probably don't use the trails. So it isn't really for every Peorian. Uh, but it is a good amenity, and I know do a number do use use them. And I do agree with uh, Mr. Pearson. I think there are other ways to look for lighting. There's low-level lighting that you can you can do, and uh, it can be a lower voltage even. And uh, you know, like sometimes, like we used to put in our yards. And <laughs> um, I, th I think there's a lot of different lighting options that you might look at, and they might serve different areas, and might not have to be the high light uh, every area. Okay, so. I'm uh, looking for consensus. Do you want to accept the recommendation that they begin to do the survey through the master plan update and then the long-term strategy and input and everything else? Yes, yes. Absolutely. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you very much. And that's all we have this evening, sir. We're adjourned.